Hello, 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 and welcome back to the SLP Corner Podcast with special guest, Guggen Chima. Welcome back to the podcast, Guggen. Thank you so much. <laughs> so, today we're talking all about report writing. I mentioned in the last podcast episode that Guggen is quite knowledgeable and skillful <laughs> in the area of report writing. So we're going to be talking all about report writing today. We're going to be talking about tips and tricks, tangible ideas, and we're going to talk, most importantly, how we use reports to advocate for kids. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, for SLPs to be in new grads and high school students who are interested in this field, what is the purpose of a report? So there's many purposes of a report. Maybe it's to document progress. Maybe it's to um, consult with a school, give recommendations and tips that they can work on. Maybe it's for the parent to use to advocate for funding. Maybe it's part of an autism assessment in British Columbia, Canada. SLPs for children under the age of six are required to assess and write a report looking at play, social language, receptive and expressive language, um, speech, sound development, you name it, all of everything under um, Everything that a speech pathologist assesses it needs to be included in that report for um, them. And then the child psychologist makes the final call on an autism diagnosis. So it could be for a diagnosis. It could be for funding. It could be um, for other professionals like doctors to look at about what we saw. So any other reasons why we'd write a report? To advocate for our clients mm -hmm. and to give very, very specific recommendations. Yeah. So basically we're going to go over reports for assessment and advocating and then I'm gonna also talk about progress reports and like treatment planning. When I started at the private clinic where I worked, I was given a contract where I needed to assess kids from a private school. There was a list of maybe 30 kids. I needed to assess them all and write a report for each child. <laughs> so as you can guess, I am a couple months into practice and this was just like, uh -huh. A lot for me, but it was the best learning experience. I have really, really worked on my report writing skills and my assessment skills. Mm -hmm. So for a report, let's start from the top. You need a clear idea of what you're assessing in the first place. Like I literally write down, this is the child I'm seeing. Here is what I think might be going on based on information I've gathered about them, right? Yeah. And then I make a kind of a little bit of prediction. So based on the information, what are we going to use to assess? Mm -hmm. So... The number one thing um, in terms of assessment, in terms of the overall process, is collaborating with other professionals. I will give parents checklists that I've created. And for example, if I think that one of my students might really, really struggle with a um, like attention and I want to make sure that I'm advocating for them, I will send teachers and parents a questionnaire that kind of allows them to just tick off like the level um, of different behaviors. And I will also make questionnaires that I've just kind of made when I first started and I've been giving them out to parents. What are you concerned about? Same with teachers, same with EAs. I will also meet with these professionals. I love collaborating with them. It's mm -hmm. a part of my routine practice. Mm -hmm. Another um, thing I really think is important to add into your report is a detailed protocol. I feel like as professionals who are regulated by a college, we need to be really clear about what we've done. If we're talking about an assessment tool, 
I don't think it's okay to just have one line about the assessment tool. I think you should understand what are you using, uh, why is this appropriate for a child. If you're going to use something like percentile ranks and standard scores, you need to explain what that is and how parents can interpret it. And I actually think it's so important because sometimes parents will see certain numbers based on a report that they don't understand and then they think, oh, my child is very, very delayed. But maybe that area is actually an area of strength for the child. So we wanna spin it in a positive way. So I have a graph in my report now that shows you, this is the normal curve. This is very big. It's in very easy to understand language, but it's a, it's a visual because parents need visual. Once again, why doesn't she have a Teachers Pay Teachers page of things like this that people can use for resources? I know. I'll get on it. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, continue. Um, I use a normal curve in my actual report because it helps teachers and just honestly anyone who might be a little confused about my assessment protocol understand. I want to make sure they understand. I think that is honestly so important what you just said because so often I read reports or I've been guilty of writing reports that do not really dive into the depth of the assessment that I used. And standardized assessments are scary for parents to see when it comes to all the numbers and the percentile ranks. And it's so important to go over that because it can actually really cause a lot of stress and miscommunications if the numbers are not explained properly because something that they might think the percentile is very concerning we might actually think like what you said oh that's actually an area of like they're higher up on the curve so this is an er like an area of strength yeah and I always spin it in a positive way like this is what we're going to work on so your child keeps improving their skills right yeah it's just a really handy device to have yeah like I I literally copy paste it because I have a template now and it's just there templates key yes Another thing I wanted to mention was, I, again, think it's really important to... Okay, go. So, again, like I said, I also think it's extremely important to, in detail, describe what you are using to assess, whether that's informal or formal. Mm -hmm. And people may not care. People may not want it. uh, People might think it's too lengthy. I just feel I need to do my job and really be very clear about the tool I'm using and add in information about it. So I would never write, um, for example, I use a self P3. I would write, the self P3 measures this. It provides scaled scores, which are this. A core language score describes this. There are individual subtests. And then I will, when I talk about the results, I will mention what the individual subtests mm-hmm. actually measure and what information I gained from it. And examples from the subtest, because sometimes, yes, and I've been guilty of this too, like, You'll explain the subtest and think that that's enough. But oftentimes our explanation, we might think that it's clear because we have a speech pathology brain, but actually a parent might read that and be like, I honestly don't know what you're even saying in this sentence comprehension subtest. Like, what are what does that really mean? Or like, what does it really mean recalling sentences? What does that mean? I don't really understand what you're saying when you're talking about like underlying grammatical forms that they have in their lexo- lexicon. It's like, that's yeah. quite confusing. So I think it's important to include examples. Um, like, just like we talked about in language sampling, include like an actual word for word example that the kid used. That's so yeah. helpful in reports. Yeah. So I'm just kind of looking at one of the reports I've recently written. And so I will first mention like, okay, this client, social communication, language and speech were assessed. So that's a very general broad term to indicate I'm assessing these areas and play, whatever. Just the areas you're um, targeting in your assessment, you note that first. And then... Um, assessment of social communication skills 
in like involved what? So did that involve um, conversational skills, joint attention, nonverbal communication? List that out. Um, and then I will go into the specifics of any standardized tools that I have used. And at the very end, I add a summary of assessment protocol. So it's really easy for parents and other professionals to understand. So um, informal play assessment, informal conversational assessment, formal standardized tests, formal speech assessment, all that information is there as well as the percentile, um, as well as the normal curve image. Okay, so from the top of the report, let's go through it. So first we're gonna say reason for assessment. Yep. They they were self refer they self referred for autism assessment. They self referred to XYZ. Next we're gonna talk about background information, parents concerns, things about the family that are relevant, language, development, mm-hmm. milestones that they've reached, um, if they're monolingual, bilingual, all that. Then um, parents, well, I said parents' concerns, parents' notes about strengths, because that's one thing. A lot yeah. of times people just say parents' concerns, but I always like to also include parents' report that these are their strengths and these are some things they're interested in to keep it yeah. a little bit positive. And also, it's important because if someone else sees that, it's actually, I think we don't talk enough about strengths in a report. Like, these are the things they are good at and these are the things they are interested in. Because so you, you need to give them. a whole picture yeah, of Yeah, exactly. It's not just like to be nice. It's pretty important and then after that we're going to talk about tools yeah assessment protocol is this uh the heading that i use Mm -hmm. and this is where i just it's an information dump of whatever i've used to assess yeah informal and formal okay everything then summary of assessment protocol at the very end okay next next i will dive into assessment scores so because now you have this image of a normal curve right above this section Next, I describe the assessment scores. Okay, yeah, I do that too. And then what I do is I go into, um, I mention briefly any sensory preferences, sensory mm-hmm. sensitivities. I mention briefly anything I noted about maybe gross motor. Like yeah. if I see a two-year-old and they're crawling, because then I might refer yeah. later on physio. I might yeah. refer later on yeah. occupational yes. therapy. Yes, and I will talk about referrals. I add that information at the end, but you can literally organize your report yeah. however you like. Okay, so then I would include social communication, what you mentioned, social yeah. referencing, joint attention, gestures, imitation, play skills, go yes. through all the play skills, expressive language, receptive language, speech sounds, voice, fluency, anything like a, else? Yeah, that you, yeah. Assess. Anything else I missed? I, nope, I think that's good. Okay. Um, so for my reports, I will add assessment scores, and then I will. my next section is discussion of assessment results. So now I have headings like expressive language, receptive language, motor speech, um, social communication, and this is where I use examples from my informal assessment and formal assessment um, into my assessment report. So I will write down areas of strength and areas of further need. So for example, some of um, in one of my assessments, I used a informal picture description task and I was looking at things like WH questions. What did the child have difficulty with? So I literally wrote... Um, what questions uh she this is an area of strength where questions this is also an area of strength why questions uh this the client would benefit from further therapy for this Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i'm like really making it clear these are the strengths based on my assessment these are the areas that would need further treatment or therapy Mm -hmm. and i just want to briefly mention because i feel very passionate about this about the following directions test for the self five and the self p three 
as well as the recalling sentences mm -hmm. for the cell 5 and the cell P3. Mm -hmm. So for the following directions test, um, I understand that you're taking it, you're providing the child with longer and longer sentences that are more complex. But I, I always, I'm really cautious interpreting those results and sometimes I don't administer the subtest because I feel like if you're testing a child's ability to follow instructions and you're saying point to the monkey in between but they don't know what the word between is, they don't have the knowledge for that basic concept. Yeah. So I, I interpret that with caution and I write that in my report if a child was really hyperactive in one subtest or really shut down and didn't want to participate I literally write in my assessment report like interpret these results with caution because the child had difficulty with and then I describe yeah one thing is like that basic concepts in the self p3 is really helpful and sometimes we don't need to use it I think it's just for five to six year olds yeah um, but it's actually pretty helpful to do regardless for that reason exactly because the following directions, it's important to know the basic concepts because maybe you're assessing a seven or eight year old and they're actually quite delayed um, in language. So you don't uh, maybe, but you don't do basic concepts because they're too old for it. But then you do following directions and they maybe like really struggle. Yes. So then it's like, okay, go back and do basic concepts. Take a look at that because then you're going to have more information. Oh, that's interesting. They yeah. didn't know this concept. They also didn't follow this direction. Yes. I agree. And another thing I'm really cautious about uh, using the cell 5, particularly the following directions subtest, is if a child performs lower on the normal curve for this subtest, I really wonder, is this a lack of understanding of these basic concepts that we're assessing? Is it a um, auditory memory difficulty? Mm -hmm. Because are they not able to remember the information and that's why they're not maybe selecting the right answer? I am just I, I make sure that that's very clear in the report and I tell parents or whoever readers to interpret with caution. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into following directions. So I'm just kind of going through expressive language. You write down results from the expressive subtests of whatever tool you used and then your informal results um mm -hmm. what did you notice about her and then this is where i add things like prompting what level of prompting did the child benefit from yeah. the most yeah yeah okay so then after receptive expressive yeah except ex expressive and receptive then i will go into social communication skills okay. i will describe like did i use a specific tool um, and then what were the results? And if I didn't use a specific tool, I will note down what I observed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, for little kids, a good thing to include here is like play milestones, like like exploratory play, functional play, symbolic play. I'm going to link in the show notes. I posted something on my website that has helpful uh, milestones for you for object play and social play milestones because that's so important to include in social communication and play skills um I don't know if we always focus enough on play in yeah. our reports and play is so informative mm -hmm. for their language and their social communication and it tells you a lot about their perspective taking yeah and I always make a note about perspective taking or theory of mind like I this is so interesting but I had a two-year-old and I was writing an autism evaluation report for him and the parents seemed really stressed out that he was taking things from our desk and throwing them off the ground. Mm -hmm. And then he would look up every time to see our reaction and parents were getting a little frustrated. But I was like, hold on a second. Your kid 
literally purposefully picked something up, dropped it to get a reaction out of you, and then makes an interesting facial expression. That is high level and important and yeah. such an area of strength. His social communication is such an area of strength. Yeah, I always like tell parents, I'm like, don't worry about... Because sometimes parents, like their intention is so good. They're like, I want my kid to be behaving, quote unquote behaving. I want my child to sit well for the SLP. And I always want to tell them, I'm like, let them do their thing. I want to see everything. Yeah. Everything. I want to see their attention. I want to see how they follow directions when I give them directions. I want to see every detail. So I always tell parents, I'm like, honestly, don't even worry about it. You can just like do follow my lead with this because I want to see what pops up. So things like that, a parent, their instinct would be like, stop throwing. Yeah. But it's like, no, I actually am so interested that you're throwing and yeah. looking back. That's so informative That's for me. really high level perspective taking. Yeah. And I always spin it in a positive way. But perspective taking is something I gain through play as well. Like when I do the play assessment, I figure out what level of play are they at and do they perspective take? Yeah. Yeah. Now let's move to recommendations and next steps. Yeah. So I just want to briefly mention that I also do speech sound and motor speech. So if you didn't OME describe what an OME is, it's to get information about their um, speech articulators structure and function. So for new grads or um, not new grads, um, SLPs to be oral mechanism exam. Yeah. We look at the structure and function of their face and you'll learn all about that in grad school. But if you're wondering what an OME is, that's what it is. Sometimes I might do like a prompt system observation analysis and then I'll write information about that prompt and prompt for anyone I will always tell because people they appreciate it they'll message me and they're like thanks for like letting us know so (laughs) it's friendly for SLPs to be okay so for SLPs to be prompt is a motor speech approach you want to share a little bit more about that because you finished your training I'm still doing my training everyone (laughs) yes I did level one training I love prompt but prompt stands for restructuring oral muscular phonetic targets Mm -hmm. it's a tactile approach but for the report I make sure I really write down information about my systematic observation analysis it's a prompt version of an oral mechanism exam and it just kind of gives you a format for your oral mechanism exam so it's really helpful and you're looking at things like level of lip rounding and retraction and I add that information in the uh, reports I will say there was um, slightly reduced lip rounding noticed or noted or or full dentition or slight jaw sliding to the left. I will note that information down. Make a list of the consonants in their inventory, make a list of phonological processes, so all of that. So that's a whole section. Once again, like so much, we have so much to do and like I don't think it's bad to do multiple dates of assessment because sometimes it's honestly hard to fit all of this into a 45 minute session. Sometimes I tell parents for this autism report, because it's the report for the autism assessment, it's honestly probably going to take us three sessions. Like, sorry, we have so much to do. (laughs) So anyways, I just wanted to say that because I feel like this is so much information for a new grad um, or an SLP to be, they might be like, what the heck? How am I going to fit all that in? Sorry, continue. And then for fluency and voice, I will just make a quick note where any were any concerns noted or observed by the examiner and if you kind of notice something you write it down and maybe you want to monitor maybe you want to treat I will just make that clear Mm -hmm. and then I really feel strongly about also doing a brief literacy assessment for school age kids and so I will do a phonological awareness screener or assessment and I might informally assess their spelling and reading and all that kind of stuff um I feel like 
it's these are very functional skills that we have expertise in and you know I I really really think that it should at least be considered even if you don't assess just I would I always consider it for myself yeah and then I dive into narrative language so this is where I have like what did I use and what were the results and I use a table to format everything um, and then I will also make a note of sensory preferences or if I've been told anything or if I've observed anything. I think that's so important to include the sensory stuff and any gross motor things you notice because I think some tendency of SLPs is like not my area, not my duty to write. But yeah, you can still say you recommend, you you need to note it because it's so helpful for another professional who sees the report. Like I would appreciate it if an OT said, I am noticing these things. I am not the person to assess their language, yeah. but I do recommend SLP because I did notice that they had a really hard time answering my questions. And you don't have to be an OT yeah, or an expert to recommend that, hey, maybe this child would benefit from just an assessment or a yeah. consult. And like you're, you can say like they did seem to have a lot of sensory exploration or they did crawl a lot instead of walking, but they are definitely past the age that they should be doing that. Maybe they should see a physiotherapist. Like, yeah, these are things any to areas of concern. Yeah, yeah. And then I will go into my summary and recommendations. And so I will um, always start this off very positively. So the student is a very lovely and pleasant, or very energetic and bright um, student, whatever. And then I will note down very clearly what they present with. Is it a motor speech disorder? Is it a developmental language disorder? And I'm bi- I've am i been like really picky about using DLD, developmental language disorder, versus receptive and expressive language delay because sometimes truly it, it delay really kind of, I feel like when I read the word delay, it assumes that a child is just going to catch up. But a disorder means that, hey, they will need some support to improve their language. I love that you're saying this because I've talked to some colleagues about this. We seem, as SLPs, hesitant to put labels on children, but part of our role as an SLP is to assess and diagnose them in the area of speech and language. And I agree with you that I... The times I've used delay versus the times I've said developmental language disorder, which that is in our scope of practice to diagnose... It is often a little bit more, um, like it lands more with the parents to understand that, no, 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 like this is something that's going to be ongoing. This is something that requires extensive therapy and we need to be committed to this. Delays, I I don't always feel get that same recognition from parents and teachers and things like that, which isn't their fault. It's just just, labels are Delay and disorder mean different things and um, they just imply different things. So I think that's important to touch on. Yeah. And then I write down, would this client benefit from speech therapy? If yes, I would write that and recommend like um, weekly, bi-weekly, 45 minutes, whatever. I make that clear. And then then I would add a section of referrals. So would they register, would they benefit from a psychologist assessment, OT, whatever it may be. And then at the end of my report. Let's go into that a little bit more. So for people listening, what are the things we can and often should refer to? Audiology, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, child psychologist, physicians. Yep. Generally, I would just recommend they go see their family doctor or their pediatrician, whichever one they have. I'm not going to be the one recommending they see a specialist in a certain area. That's not really my scope. I actually think they should see the family doctor or the pediatrician first. I often also refer to dentists because that is something that I think a lot of parents may not know when to see a dentist for the first time. Mm -hmm. So the guidelines for that is within six months of an eruption of the first tooth 
or by one year of age. And sometimes I see two and a half year olds and they've never been to the dentist before. And dentists actually have a lot of knowledge when it, like, I say actually as if we're surprised, but I think people are just think of doctors, but it's like, no, dentists actually know so much about the facial structure and the oral facial myology. Yes, dentists are fantastic with that. Some dentists really specialize in that. I will refer out to a myofunctional therapist. Usually they're like SLPs or they could be dentists or dental hygienists. Yeah, anyone with the training in it really. Yeah, another thing I always add to the end of my reports is like an appendix because when parents get reports, it's a lot of information and they can be really stressed and overwhelmed. So I always make a appendix at the end where I write down, here are some professionals you can contact for these services. I will write, this is not an exhaustive list. It's not a long list. This is just a starting point. Okay, another specialist you can refer to is a literacy specialist. So there's a program called Orton Gillingham that people come trained in and become specialists in literacy, reading and writing skills. We have an OG specialist in the clinic and that's someone I might refer to. Anyone else you refer to? I think that's about it. Those are the main people that I would refer to. Yeah. So the most common ones I refer to is child psych OT. Yeah. Really common. Yeah. And then I kind of delve into the recommendation section and this I feel like is one of the most important sections because now you've given parents and staff or other professionals all this information but what are you going to do with it Mm -hmm. so I make my recommendations very very specific and I mentioned specific tools parents can use and specific therapy materials they could access that are free or low cost so that they can continue doing what we're doing at home so for example I will if I notice that um one of my one of my clients is really struggling with problem solving, I might write something like, for problem solving, during play or daily routine, set up problems and allow the child to have the opportunity to generate solutions so that parents are informally targeting this at home. Um, Another thing I do is things like adding redundancy to support the child's conversation um, and verbal instructions. For example, if I know based on my assessment that longer instructions my child, the child does not follow along, I will write specifically, use a first X then Y approach when giving instructions in a sequential order. So these are tangible things that can be applied. Important note, taking a neurodiversity approach, when you mentioned first then, we aren't talking about visuals and activities, like first you need to do this very unpreferred activity, then you get to get a reward. But it's about simplifying your language structure to meet the child where they're at. Yeah. So it's just about language comprehension. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then... I will also, of course, add other instructional accommodations that may be helpful in the classroom. Pre-teaching, allowing for increased processing time, using modeling to clearly demonstrate the target, and using peer partners if possible, and then teach and promoting self-advocacy. And then the very last thing I will talk about is funding options. So into my actual report, if I know that the family does not have access to government-based funding and are paying out of pocket. I know of some organizations and charities that will provide families with grants up to a certain level of family income. So I include that information just because I don't need to know the family's financial history, but I need to make sure that they're aware that there are funding opportunities available and if they qualify, I will help them. Wow, how long are your reports? Quite long, but I would say the recommendations part is like the most detailed. My reports on average are like 
10 to 12 are mm-hmm. yours i'm yeah. assuming yours are longer no 10 to 12 okay so yeah. 10 to 12 pages this Thanks. is for in-depth assessment though yes yeah. yeah exactly then one thing i want to touch on is progress notes and i'm going to just break this down for you guys i was first introduced to this by my colleague when i first meet a kid i do a treatment plan and i charge about 50 minutes of time for it i get so many questions about this so i want to cover it of one page with like anywhere between four I've actually had up to 10 goals. I'm trying to have less goals because sometimes it's good to have a lot of goals. Sometimes I think it's a little bit better to have less goals depending on various factors. However, I write the goals, expressive and receptive language goals, social communication goals, maybe phonological awareness goals, speech sound goals, things like that. Then I write the treatment block, probably about three months. And then every few months I make literally the shortest progress note you've ever seen and once again I initially got this format from my coworker at speech meta so I didn't like come up with this but I really liked the way she did it you just make a progress note you duplicate your original treatment plan just duplicate it in word or pages make a very small table mastered 80 to 100 percent developing 50 to 80 percent emerging 20 to 50 percent rarely zero to 20 percent add a column after your goal and put progress as of the date put mastered developing emerging rarely then i include a notes qualitative and i include a plan qualitative i update the other treatment plan 30 minutes charge it really takes that long wouldn't take any longer than that sometimes i'll have goals for future blocks because sometimes parents i think it's helpful for them to know where that's our long-term objective that is like what i do for my progress notes and treatment plans that's how brief i think it can be for certain circumstances where maybe you have an autistic child on your caseload you're going to be working with him for for years and the teacher needs to know what's happening with his goals, the EA needs to know, the school-based SLP needs to know, the occupational therapy is wondering, the parent wants to know. There's so many different players on that team that need to know, but you realistically aren't going to have time every two to three months to write an in-depth report. You're just not. So I think this is so helpful. Mm -hmm. But of course, there are times where I will write like a seven-page report. It's extremely detailed. And I might reassess for the progress report. Yeah. progress reports I'm talking about but I think that that brief of a progress report is okay and extremely helpful so there are times for in-depth assessment reports everything Guggen discussed and then for progress notes and things like that it's okay to have a brief report I love that I think that's so helpful for the team yeah like really really helpful yeah because you want it consistently but realistically we're just not gonna have time to write an extremely long report every two months every three months it's just not gonna happen and then one thing i will say charge for your report writing for private practice slps i get dms from some of people who are following me saying i can't charge that much the parents won't be okay with it or the company that i work with we can't charge for report writing time or on and on and on this is absolutely not okay. Report writing takes so much time. The most I will charge for it is three hours because I, I think like realistically, I know as a new SLP it takes longer, but like I won't charge over three hours, mm-hmm. but I will consistently charge three hours for reports that take me three hours. It takes me two hours, I'll charge two hours. But these reports are so detailed and they take so long and you need to get paid for your time. Every other profession charges for the time they document lawyers child psychologists ot's p 
PTs. We are so empathetic and caring, but we cannot let that affect our rights as a, someone working in this profession. Like, we need to be paid for the work we do. And I've never had parents say anything about it, honestly. All the parents are like, yeah, that makes sense. I tell them, I'm like, this report is going to be between 10 to 12 pages. Are you okay? That it will probably take up to three hours of a charge. And they're like, okay, yeah, like, all right. I'm like, I'm not, we're not doing this all the time, but this is kind of what's happening. So I just feel very strongly about that because yeah. I get so many messages from people saying that they're like, oh, but I can't charge for it. And it's like, that's not okay. It's just a little surprising to me. Sorry, I'm just taking that in. But yes, you definitely should charge your time. Yeah. It's valuable. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I hope you guys thought this was helpful. I love talking about this. I can't wait to be on again. I can't wait for Gugan to come back on. I hope you guys thought it was helpful. Got some tangible takeaways. Let us know if you have any other questions about report writing after you listen to this. Hopefully we covered it all. And see you next Monday. Monday.